Well, there was once a man who was walking along the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco when he saw a woman about to jump off. He ran up to her trying to dissuade her from killing herself. He told her simply that God loved her and a tear came to her eye. Then he asked her, are you a Christian? I am a Christian, she replied. He said, me too. A small world, Protestant or Catholic? A Protestant, she said. Me too. What denomination, the man asked. Baptist, she answered. Really, the man said. Me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? (laughs) Northern Baptist, she replied. Well, me too, he said. Northern Conservative Baptist (laughs) or Northern Liberal Baptist? Northern Conservative Baptist, she answered. He said, well, that's amazing. Me too. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist? Or Northern Conservative Reformed Baptist? Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist, the woman answered. Remarkable, the man said. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region? Or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Eastern Region, he asked. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region, she said. A miracle, the man cried. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879? Or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912, the man asked. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912, the woman answered. To which the man said, die, heretic, and he pushed her off the bridge. (laughs) (laughs) Not such a true story. Ah, yes, we Christians... What is true, however, is we we certainly have a reputation for factionalism, don't we, as that joke demonstrates. But you know what, as we'll see today, divisions within Christ's church, they're actually no laughing matter at all. They're, They're really quite serious. And so we need to make sure that we understand the problem with factions and and how to resist the temptation of forming them. Uh, Today, we're continuing in our series on 1 Corinthians, and today we reach the second half of the first chapter. Uh, So if you don't already have a Bible open in front of you at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, can I encourage you to grab one now and turn with me to 1 Corinthians. It's page 807 of the small print, 1772 of the large print Bibles. And as you're looking that up, let me remind you uh, something of what we learnt last week regarding the background to this letter. Uh, We're reading a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul, uh, written to the church in the city of Corinth, located in what is now the country of Greece. Uh, It was actually the same church that Paul himself established when he first brought the gospel to the city. But now, just a few years later, Paul is in another city, in the city of Ephesus in Turkey. And it's there that he hears some very disturbing news 
about the Corinthian church. A certain people from the household of a woman named Chloe have visited Paul and told him how factions have now formed in the Corinthian church. That people have begun dividing into opposing groups according to their loyalty to certain individuals, uh, one of whom is Paul himself. But it's important to realise that these groups haven't formed on account of theological differences, but rather they're formed as part of the same power struggles that dominated the broader Corinthian culture. You may remember last week we learnt that Corinth was a city where social climbing uh, was a major preoccupation for people. It was all about where you were in the pecking order. And so in order to get ahead, you attached yourself to those you felt could advance your own social standing. In particular, it was common in Corinth for people to associate themselves with certain professional teachers or philosophers who would travel from city to city, trying to attract a following. They'd try and win people over by making impressive philosophical speeches full of big words and fancy arguments. Their aim was to convince people of how wise and sophisticated they were. And as their following increased, well, so too did their wealth and fame. But as these groups formed within society, they became rivals of one another. Each group claiming to be more advanced, more sophisticated than the others. Each one trying to jostle its way to the top of the social ladder. And now it seems that these same types of power struggles have entered the Corinthian church where four distinct groups uh, have formed allegiances to four leading personalities. Now, there's one group that claims to follow Paul. He was, after all, the founder of the Corinthian church. Now, that's pretty impressive. Something for the people in this group to take great pride in, I'm sure. But then there's another group that claims to follow Apollos. I mean, after all, he is the latest, greatest model in Christian teachers. No doubt an upgrade on Paul in the mind of this group. But then there's another group that claims to follow Cephas, that is the Apostle Peter. I mean, he's actually one of the original 12 disciples. Hard to top that one, hey? But then there's one final group that make the ultimate claim. They're following none other than Jesus Christ himself. No following of mere human teachers for this group, no. Nothing short of the divine son of God will do for them in a a na-na-na-na-na kind of way. Not that any of the leaders involved here would actually approve of these factions forming around them, no. But sadly, uh, these groups have formed and now they're pitted against each other. There are divisions within the church marked with jealousy and quarrels and strife. And so Paul now writes this letter to the Corinthian church, strongly urging them to put an end to these divisions, calling on these Christians to instead be united in the common cause of Jesus Christ. Read with me from chapter 1, verse 10. Chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you will all agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you, 
and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. See, these people have formed groups around the particular leaders they believe is most superior in an attempt to make themselves feel superior. But the result for Christ's church is disunity and conflict. And so for the rest of today's passage, Paul offers these Corinthians four truths to reveal the foolishness of their faction forming and to correct it. Four truths. Firstly, Paul reminds these Christians that they are united by one Christ and Saviour. You see, there is only one Christ. But any outsider watching the behaviour of the people in this church could easily come to the conclusion that there are four Christs. But there is only one Christ. And he cannot be divided up among groups like this. Even the so-called Christ group are guilty of this. Because, you see, they're making Jesus the head of just their own faction rather than the head of the whole church. Now, there's only one Christ, and there's only one Saviour, and that Saviour is not Paul, or Apollos, or Peter. It's Jesus. The fact is, Paul wasn't crucified for anyone, nor was anyone ever baptised into Paul's name, because he's not the Saviour. In fact, when it comes to baptism... In retrospect, Paul's just happy that he didn't baptise many people there in Corinth, lest more of them be tempted to treat him as some kind of saviour. Because Paul knows Jesus is the saviour, not him. Paul was sent to Corinth to preach Jesus. He didn't go there in order to draw people to himself, like the travelling philosophers did, using dazzling words and wise-sounding arguments. No, Paul's aim was always to put Jesus in the spotlight as he preached the gospel. Because to do anything else would be to empty the cross of its power, its power to save these people. Read with me from verse 13. Verse 13. Is Christ divided? Of course not. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Were you baptised into the name of Paul? (laughs) Don't be silly. I'm thankful that I did not baptise any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptised into my name. Yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of human wisdom... Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You see, it's absurd for these Christians to now be uh, separating into factions because they all share the same Christ, the same Saviour. And so they're one family in Him, united in Him. That's the first truth that Paul puts forward to get these Corinthians back on track. The second... It's the truth that these Christians have believed a week 
and foolish gospel. They've believed a weak and foolish gospel. That is, the message of the cross is one that's both weak and foolish by worldly standards. Because you see, by worldly standards, according to worldly standards, the value of a human being depends on how powerful or popular or prestigious that person is. But when God, the creator of the world, sent King Jesus to die on a cross, he turned worldly wisdom on its head. He showed it to be the foolishness that it is. For Jesus didn't come chasing power or popularity or prestige, but willingly died in weakness and shame, rejected by people. Now, the Jews at this time, what they really wanted was for their Messiah to come in a great display of miraculous power, destroying their Roman oppressors. So the message that Christ had already come and had been nailed to a Roman cross and died was ridiculous. And the Greeks at this time, well, life for them was all about success. It was about being admired for, you, for their wisdom and achievements. And so, of course, the message that they are, in fact, all helpless sinners in need of a crucified Lord was laughable. Now, for most people back then, the message of a suffering, dying king was pure foolishness, and they rejected it, sadly putting themselves on the road to destruction. But for others, for those Jews and Gentiles whom God had called, whose hearts he had touched by his spirit, oh, this message was not foolishness at all but rather God's powerful, wise way of saving them. Here, read with me from verse 18. Verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Come on, bring him out. Let's see what they've got to offer. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. You see, Paul reminds these Christians that in the gospel, their Lord Jesus humbled himself to die on a cross, showing that true wisdom is not found in selfish ambition and self-promotion, but rather in the humble and sacrificial service of others to the glory of God. That's God's strength. That's God's wisdom. And of course, if that's true, then how foolish it is 
that these Christians would now form these factions in order to serve themselves, seek their own glory. Well, next, Paul puts forward his third truth. The truth that when these Christians first believed the gospel, they were a weak and foolish people. That is, they were weak and foolish in the world's eyes. Paul points out that when he first met them, not many of these Corinthian Christians were well-educated or influential or well-connected. In fact, they were a bunch of nobodies by worldly standards. Yet God chose them. He called them. Why? Well, ultimately, to shame those who consider themselves wise. To humble those who boast in their own achievements or status. Because on the day of judgment, their pride will be turned to shame as they realise just how wrong they were. But on the day of judgment, these lowly Corinthian Christians, these nobodies, will be revealed as the truly wise ones in Jesus. For entrusting him, their status, at least in God's eyes, Their status has improved dramatically. They've been forgiven, made righteous, holy. And so it is these nobodies have become God's somebodies. Not because they're better or more intelligent or well-connected, but simply on account of God's pure grace. Read with me from verse 26. Verse 26. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is, our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, God didn't choose to save these Corinthians because they were somebodies. In fact, they were nobodies, saved by grace alone. So how foolish it is that they would now go seeking some kind of VIP status through their various factions. Instead, Paul reminds them that their true status is found in Christ. And so Christ is the only one in whom they should boast. And then in the final part of today's passage, Paul offers his fourth and final truth to counteract the divisions in this church. It's the truth that the gospel first came to these Corinthians, not via some silver-tongued superstar, but via a weak and foolish preacher, Paul himself. Again, weak and foolish by human standards. You see, when Paul first turned up at Corinth, he wasn't anything like those travelling philosophers who, who sought fame and wealth by making themselves look impressive. 
by wowing the crowds with their eloquent speeches and then awe-inspiring PowerPoint presentations. No, for Paul, it was never about him, but about Christ. And so he humbly preached the cross. And as he did so, he often felt weak and afraid. And you know, it's no wonder. In the book of Acts, we read of the dangers Paul faced in Corinth as he preached such a despised message. And yet he continued, undaunted, though at times trembling. Because his preaching in Corinth was never about increasing his own fan base. Instead, he simply wanted people to see, even through his weakness, just how powerful God was. That they might ultimately be in awe of him. And so put their trust in Jesus. And so be saved. Read with me these final verses from chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. See, Paul is making clear that he, as a preacher of the gospel, is nothing. He's not a superhero worthy of their adoration, but rather an ordinary man with normal human fears And the only reason they were ever saved through his ministry is because God was behind it all. It was never about him. It was always about Jesus. And so the idea that these Christians would now divide into factions, idolising Paul or any other human being for that matter, well, it can be seen for what it is. Utter foolishness. And that's where we're going to leave 1 Corinthians for today. But do you you see what's happened there in the Corinthian church? Do you see what's happened? Factions have formed, with each group holding an allegiance to a particular leader, with the divisions resulting in all sorts of jealousy and quarrels and strife. And so Paul now reminds the Corinthians of four truths as an antidote to their divisions. He reminds them that they are, in fact, united in the one Christ and Saviour, whose weak and foolish message has been embraced by this weak and foolish people who heard it from a weak and foolish preacher. Four truths offered by Paul to reveal the foolishness of the Corinthians' faction forming and to correct it. So what about us here this morning? Do you think there's anything that we can learn from this episode in the Corinthian church? Are are there lessons for us here at Chatswood Presbyterian Church? 
Well, as I think about our own church, I'm, I'm not so sure we're, we're experiencing the same kind of factionalism that was evident there in Corinth. Now, the truth is, I don't hear too many people claiming, you know, I follow Jeff, <laughs> I follow Warren, <laughs> I follow Marty, <laughs> I follow Naomi. <laughs> the fact is, when I stood up this morning, I didn't hear a section of the church cry out, give me a W! <laughs> <laughs> or sit down! <laughs> but sadly, I have heard stories, even this past week, of congregations elsewhere that have been divided after people have sided with various leaders. Not over matters of doctrine, but, but due to clashing personalities. And maybe that's something you've even experienced in a former church. Oh, how it must grieve Jesus to see his church being ripped apart like that. And, and we need to be careful that it, it never happens here. But whilst I don't think that that kind of blatant factionalism is here in our church at this point in time, I do believe that there are still lessons for us to learn from Paul's four truths. And so to finish this morning, let's briefly think about these four truths and how they might apply to us here today. Well, firstly, firstly, the first truth was that truth that as Christians, we are all united in one Christ and Saviour. That was a very important lesson for the Corinthian Christians to learn. But, you know, it remains a very important lesson for us to learn here today too. Because, sure, we might not have blatant factions operating in our church at this time. But I do wonder whether there isn't just a hint of something a, a little more subtle than that happening. You know, it's very interesting to watch what happens immediately after the church service. To, to notice who speaks to whom. To see who's left standing by themselves. To see who congregates around whom. How will you decide who you'll spend time with after this morning's service? Will it be based on someone's age or culture or personality? Will it be the easy people, the people who make you feel good? If so, then, friend, maybe you're expressing just a hint of the same kind of factionalism that was there in Corinth. Now, of course, I'm not suggesting that we won't have a natural affinity for certain types of people, nor am I suggesting that you should go out of your way to, to avoid the people you like. <laughs> but, friend, I am urging you to go out of your way to welcome and befriend people who are different to you. Because, you know, there is only one Christ and Saviour. And we are one family in him. Secondly, we need to remember that like the, the Christians in Corinth, we too have believed a weak and foolish message by human standards. A message of a crucified Christ. And so we've believed the message that true wisdom is found in humble service now, with glory coming later. 
What's that going to look like practically for us here in this church? Well, it'll mean looking for ways to serve here, whilst not not seeking recognition or even thanks for it. It'll mean being willing to do the little unseen jobs, not just the big upfront ones. It'll mean each of us humbly doing our part for Jesus' glory and not our own. You ever wondered how these little yellow welcome cards make their way into your pew each week? Probably not. Well, it's all because about two years ago, one servant-hearted person asked if there was anything that needed to be done here in the church. And so she has now faithfully served us and our newcomers ever since. No fanfare. No seeking praise of people. No drawing attention to herself. But the Lord sees her humble service. And he sees what a truly wise woman she is. True wisdom is found in humble service. Thirdly, we need to remember that as Christians, we are all somebodies in Christ. You know, when the people in Corinth first believed, not many of them were educated or or influential or well-connected. They were a bunch of nobodies, really, by human standards. Yet God called them to salvation. By grace, he made them somebodies. See, God doesn't value people according to their human achievements, does he? And so you know what? Neither should we. Now, I look around at the people in this church and I dare say there are lots of educated, influential, well-connected people. But as Christians, that's not where we find our true value, is it? And nor is it where we find the true value of those around us. No, we are all just sinners saved by grace. No one superior, no one inferior. Because to see the grace of Christ, well, that is the great leveller, isn't it? Why might you be tempted to think you're superior to others in this church? Oh, I don't know. Maybe you've been in this church for quite a while now and you see the the newbies as somehow less part of this church than you. Well, maybe you, you, you rate people according to which school they went to how rich they are, how poor they are, how well they speak English, their marital status. And why why might you be tempted to think you're inferior to others in this church? I don't know. Perhaps there's a particular sin in your past. Or perhaps you're embarrassed by your lack of Bible knowledge. Maybe it's something to do with how you look or how well you speak English. Well, friend, whether you feel superior or inferior, the problem's the same, isn't it? You've imbibed the wisdom of the world, the wisdom that says your value is found in your achievements and your status. But that's not why God chose us, is it? It didn't even factor into the equation. And so we've now got to accept and cherish each other despite our differences, 
Because you see, now in Christ, we're all somebodies. And then fourth and finally, this passage offers a lesson to the leaders among us. Whether it be those who preach or lead Bible studies or lead services or or sing up the front, we're reminded in this passage that our ministry is not ultimately about us. It's about Jesus. Our job as leaders is simply to bring praise to our Lord. We're to exalt Jesus, not ourselves. But you know, if you're like me, then you find that rather hard. Because the last thing you want is for people to see you as the weak and flawed person that you really are. But the lesson for us here is that we don't have to pretend to have it all together. Like Paul, we can humbly share our weaknesses and our fears with our fellow believers and we can, we can ask them for, for their prayers when we're struggling. See, we don't have to pretend to be more than we are because it's Jesus we're trying to exalt, not ourselves. And when you think about that, it's actually quite liberating, isn't it? To think that God will still use us You know, in all our weaknesses, even as we tremble, he'll still use us and he'll still use us to glorify Christ. And the the, the lesson for the rest of us here is please don't put your leaders on a pedestal thinking that we don't struggle just like you do. Instead, pray for us, remembering that we, like you, are just sinners saved by grace. Friends, there is only one Christ and we are one family in him called to live humble lives of service, finding our true status in Jesus, following weak human leaders. And so as we now live out these truths, may we all bring glory to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this church. Uh, Thanks that we are one family united in Christ. Thanks for showing us true wisdom in the cross. Please help us now to humbly love and serve each other. Please help us to view each other rightly as precious in your sight. Please use our leaders despite their weaknesses. And may we together as your church bring you the glory and honour you so richly deserve. Amen.